Sexuality is a broad term that encompasses sexual identity, activity, attitude towards sex, intimacy, partnership, and pleasure. In this podcast, we cover the basics of sexual function and the effects of aging, medical comorbidities, and mental health on sexuality. We discuss sexual health in long-term care settings and in older adults with cognitive disorders and suggest an approach to commonly encountered sexual health issues. Welcome to the Carlat Psychiatry Podcast. This is another episode from the Geriatric Psychiatry Team. I'm Neha Jain, an Associate Professor of Psychiatry, Medical Director for the Mood and Anxiety Disorders Program, and Associate Program Director for the Geriatric Psychiatry Fellowship at the University of Connecticut Health Center in Farmington, Connecticut. In today's podcast, I'm joined by two of my colleagues. I'm Stephanie Collier, the Editor-in-Chief of the Carlat Geriatric Psychiatry Report. And I'm Dr. Rehan Aziz, an Associate Professor of Psychiatry and Neurology at Hackensack Meridian School of Medicine. I'm also the Associate Program Director for Geriatric Psychiatry and General Psychiatry at Jersey Shore University Medical Center in Neptune, New Jersey. Let's begin our discussion with the topic Dr. Jane started out with. What are your thoughts about how sexual function and sexuality intersect in older adults? Yes, I think first it's just important to acknowledge that older adults are sexually active because discussions about sexual issues are often avoided in healthcare settings. You know, there is often discomfort on part of the patient or the clinician, a lack of knowledge. I mean, how much training do you remember in med school and residency about sexual health, right? Or a fear of embarrassment or just plain ageist beliefs. However, a fulfilling sex life is a crucial aspect of quality of life for many seniors. That makes a lot of sense. The question is, how do we bring this up when we're talking to our patients and assessing their sexual health in clinical settings? So I tend to start first by just asking permission. You know, can we, is it okay if I ask you a few questions about sexual health or sexual activity? Then I ask more open-ended questions. You know, do you have any concerns in terms of your sexual activity? Or have you noticed any changes in your sexual relationship over time? Many older adults will not talk about sexual activity or any health issues if there are others in the room. So I do try to ensure some privacy when screening for sexual dysfunction. And then I'll ask about problems with libido, for men getting or maintaining an erection, for women, dryness or discomfort, and for all genders, difficulty achieving orgasm. Dr. Jean, I had a question for you regarding that. So my experience is I will usually have patients come to the office and if they're accompanied by a partner, then there's no issue with asking about sexual function, sexual activity, but often they're coming with caregivers or their children. And then it can become quite uncomfortable to ask them these questions. How do you handle those situations? Absolutely. And first of all, I would say don't, you know, so do not ask the question if there is anybody other than the partner. And even sometimes when it is the sexual partner that's present, some people may not feel comfortable. Usually I try to sneak in at least some, you know, private minutes with the patient and I can just say to whoever's with them, you know, I would like to ask them some questions in private if that's okay with you. And most of the time, you know, the caregivers, family members, whoever is there is completely open to it. Usually I don't even say why, because there is also other things when you're treating older adults, right, where you want some privacy. 
Uh, so then I'll escort whoever's with them outside, return and talk to the patient, and then bring the family member back in. And do you find that patients are forthcoming when you're speaking to them one-on-one? I was reading that only 17% of older adults are asked about their sexual activity. Right. And I think, again, that number is on us, right? So we don't ask. But what I have found is when I ask, people are often surprisingly forthcoming. And often as the discussion goes on, it kind of eases the air and they become more and more open. So usually I like to bring it up fairly quickly so that no, this is something on the agenda and this is something that's okay to talk about. And usually I find as they become more and more comfortable, they'll open up more and more. What kind of questions do you use to open up? So again, you know, do you have any concerns about your sexual activity? You know, how is your intimate life with your partner going? And then kind of, you know, gauge their interest, gauge their response. Sometimes, honestly, it seems like they've been waiting, right, for somebody to ask that question. And they have all these things that they feel like are so uncomfortable to talk about. And getting that tacit permission from the clinician goes such a long way. And if it seems like they're uncomfortable or hesitant, I'll just back off. And then often when I kind of wrap up and I say, do you have any questions or concerns? They will come back to that. So really just bringing, you know, questions about sexual health out in the open, acknowledging that as something that we do discuss in part of a clinical visit, and then sort of following the patient's lead. Is there anything you do differently with the older adults when you think about medical comorbidities or other things you want to specifically ask about? Yes, that's a great question. I think we can't ask about sexual health without asking about medical history. So many of the diseases that older adults deal with, Parkinson's disease, cancer, diabetes, heart disease, they can all contribute to sexual dysfunction. So I will usually ask about the underlying medical history. I will also ask if they have noticed any relationship between the two, right? So if they have sexual dysfunction, do you recall if this started before or after your diagnosis of XYZ? And then the treatment recommendations are usually based on underlying causes. So you may be prescribing medications like sildenafil. You may be referring patients to urology or sexual health counseling or evaluation for you know, pelvic floor physical therapy for women. Do you talk to them about sexually transmitted diseases? I saw that the rates have been increasing of gonorrhea and chlamydia in older adults pretty significantly over the last several years, which means they're having sex. We're just not asking them about it. Exactly. And I also think that, you know, at some point we sort of started assuming that STDs were not going to be as common in older adults. So I always ask, you know, if they have any concerns about their own or their partner's sexual health, you know, undergoing screening for STDs, it's pretty common and easy to add it on to the rest of the labs. Again, uh, being open-ended, but at the same time being very straightforward so that there is no discomfort in bringing up concerns. And if they have additional concerns, then they don't feel, you know, uncomfortable bringing those up. I do, you know, want to emphasize, because I've certainly been guilty of this, trying to avoid making assumptions about sexual orientation or relationship status. And again, following their lead, allowing them to, you know, disclose their preferences at their own pace. 
It almost sounds like when you ask about bowel habits, for example, if you're feeling comfortable asking the question, the patient feels more comfortable answering the question. If you feel a little bit embarrassed asking the question, they'll feel more embarrassed. So asking in a very straightforward way, is it's, that's great advice. And, you know, we ask about invasive things all the time. I mean, asking somebody about their bowel habits is just as invasive as asking about their sexual health. So to a big extent, I think it's our own discomfort that plays into this. We know that depression and anxiety are important risk factors for sexual dysfunction, as are the medications used to treat them. SSRIs can cause loss of libido, erectile dysfunction, and delayed ejaculation. So when we have a patient that has sexual dysfunction and depression or anxiety, um, how do you suggest we tailor our treatment? And how do we discuss these possible side effects with them? Yes, Dr. Aziz. So I think, again, first of all, being aware that Sexual side effects are just as much a risk for older adults um, as they are for younger adults before prescribing medications, as well as during the first few follow-ups after starting a new antidepressant. I regularly discuss potential side effects, again, just with everything else, you know, stomach discomfort, headaches, insomnia, sexual side effects. Other side effects may be influenced by dosage and can sometimes persist even after stopping the medication. I tend to um, suggest brief drug holidays quite a bit. So if you have planned sexual activity, you know, don't take your medication for 24 to 48 hours. But in some cases where this is a persistent problem, recommending switching to antidepressants that are less likely to cause sexual side effects, like bupropion, mirtazapine, or vortioxetine. Do you have any other approaches that might work in such a situation? Sometimes I also I'm, think about augmenting with bupropion, and I'm curious what your thoughts are about that. So I personally, you know, I've, I've read that approach. I just personally haven't had much luck with it. I don't know what you think, Rehan. I think I've had fair success with it. I'll usually switch to bupropion if clinically indicated, but also augmenting with bupropion seems like a fair strategy. If it is an older adult who is sexually active and that's a concern for them, usually I'll start with mirtazapine or rupropion from the beginning. And as you indicated, there's been more data that vortioxetine also uh, might be beneficial for having lower rates of sexual dysfunction than SSRIs. Question for you. My worry with the drug holidays is that it's going to become a permanent holiday. Have you seen that happen? Interestingly... Less than I would have thought. And the way I think of it is, you know, drug compliance rates are in general not very good, right? People don't take medications every day, despite what we like to think. So the people who come in complaining of sexual side effects and thinking about, you know, okay, what can I do to fix this generally seem to be somewhat more motivated. And often the sexual side effects are at least partly, if not entirely, the reason behind the noncompliance. So if we can address that with the drug holiday, I think it actually makes them more likely to resume the medication. I am not above reminding people, though, or checking in with them, like, okay, how many days were you actually off it before you restarted? And then sort of reinforcing those parameters. So we talked about antidepressants. What about the antipsychotics? 
So we know that antipsychotics can also negatively affect sexuality, reducing libido, causing erectile dysfunction and amenorrhea in younger adults. And the sexual side effects are greater in the first generation and prolactin-inducing antipsychotics, like risperidone and paliperidone. Dr. Jane, what is your process for addressing the antipsychotic-related sexual dysfunction? That's a great question, because again, when we think of sexual dysfunction, we tend to think of antidepressants more than antipsychotics. But the same idea before prescribing and during the first few follow-up visits after starting an antipsychotic, I will ask about sexual side effects. In general, the indications for antipsychotics are such that I don't usually recommend a drug holiday. However, if sexual side effects are present, I may suggest switching to aripiprazole which tends to have fewer sexual side effects. There are some newer antipsychotics out on the market now with similar profiles or recommending the use of adjuvant sildenafil to manage the dysfunction. It's well known that sexual dysfunction can be affected by the aging process. As an example, women tend to have lower estrogen levels after menopause which can lead to vulvovaginal atrophy and discomfort during sexual activity. Dr. Jane or Dr. Collier, how do you address this? Again, a very common problem, Rehan, and one that we don't ask about often, I think. So always ask if there is an issue of dryness or discomfort during sex. The first recommendation is usually to use a vaginal lubricant. I do encourage women to talk to their primary care physician or the gynecologist about possible treatment options as well, including local and systemic hormone therapy. Uh, For older men who are experiencing erectile or ejaculatory dysfunction, again, uh, emphasizing that it's very common. Then uh, looking at modifiable risk factors, so smoking, hypertension, obesity, and then additionally psychotherapy as well as trial of a phosphodiesterase 5 inhibitor. This is another one of those topics that might not come up unless you ask about it and normalize it too. So I have found that it's helpful sometimes to say many of my patients experience this. Is this an issue for you as well? Yes. And the other piece, I don't know if you've both seen this, is menopause can vary so widely among women. So, you know, anywhere from women who have premature menopause to in their 40s all the way into their late 50s. So this question has a very long life. You know, we need to be asking it across the lifespan almost. Let's talk about treating inappropriate sexual behavior in dementia. It can be challenging for clinicians. It can be very complicated if it happens in a long-term care setting or another community setting. How do you all approach it? Dr. Aziz, that's an excellent question, and it also affects the family members. A huge concern. Different dementias can cause inappropriate sexual behavior. Alzheimer's dementia can cause a lack of interest in sexual activity, but it can also contribute to inappropriate behaviors. Frontotemporal dementia could also lead to sexual disinhibition. While other dementias might have it at later stages, this could appear pretty early on. And then the effectiveness of our psychotropic medications to address inappropriate sexual behaviors is a little bit uncertain. The best, of course, is behavioral interventions. But what do they look like in practice? Redirection, distraction, reminding, they can be useful. But sometimes we have to think a little bit harder about what can stop these behaviors. Some clinicians do use jumpsuits or they 
button the shirt on backwards so that the buttons are in the back. So that way they don't expose themselves. But of course, this is something where a clinician really needs to weigh the risks and the benefits before suggesting something like that. Those are really interesting ideas. I think one thing to consider also is that patients may misinterpret behavior. So if personal care is being provided by a nurse or a home health aide, um, they may experience that as a more intimate gesture or touch than it's meant to be. Uh, and so there may be ways for the caregiver to alter what they're doing or to redirect the patient. Dr. Jane, how do you treat inappropriate sexual behavior? I mean, luckily, they're not that common, but when it happens, especially in a long-term care setting, it can be very upsetting for the staff and for family. Yes, and it's one of those things where, you know, for us, it's just one of the many behaviors, unfortunately, that can come with dementia, but it has a disproportionate effect on in terms of distress for patients, for families, for caregivers. If behavioral interventions are not working, there are case studies that suggest using antidepressants, particularly SSRIs, as well as antipsychotics. There is less evidence for mood stabilizers, antihypertensives, um, or cimetidine. I've always struggled, you know, even though the option of using antiandrogens is there, I've always struggled with the ethical concerns with that, especially if the patient cannot provide informed consent. So I wonder what your thoughts are about that. I think that's really complicated. So I have never started an anti-androgen, but I have continued them. And these were patients who were in long-term care settings. So for me, the decision process was, well, if they're not on it, they're going to have inappropriate behavior and they're going to be asked to leave the facility. And so they're going to be in a worse situation because they'll have no place to stay and no one providing care. And it was the only way to manage their very aggressive and disturbing behavior. So it was with a heavy heart um, that I continued the anti-androgens, but I agree with you. They're always a very, very last resort choice. And I have had some success with the SSRI approach where inappropriate behavior absolutely stopped once a patient was at a high enough dose. So um, for tolerability and for, as you mentioned, sort of the risk-benefit ratio, we shouldn't minimize the SSRIs and pushing the dose up high enough to stop the behaviors, which can absolutely disappear. That's a good point. Do you feel like you've needed to use higher than usual doses uh, or maybe even supratherapeutic doses uh, to achieve that effect with SSRIs? No, but it was going toward the higher FDA-approved maximum range, actually, which Generally, when we think about treating older adults, they, they often benefit at lower doses. But in terms of the sexual behavior, I think it is dose dependent. How long did it take your patients to respond? This is a small uh, number of patients that I'm speaking about, but it was a couple weeks. Okay, so we have to be patient. And this happened actually in the inpatient setting where it was first noticed. So it was within an inpatient stay where as the dose increased, the behaviors went down. And that was the only variable at the time. Yes, I think that's the big thing with SSRIs is with just the delay in response. You start something, you titrate the dose, and then there is just a lot of education with staff and family that has to be done while we wait for the medications to kick in. I'm curious about sort of the, the ethical slash legal aspect of this, like in terms of documentation, if you have any thoughts about, you know, who do you involve, um, especially if the patient does not have capacity, um, you know, how do you make sure that this is in line with the current regulations and how do you document it all? 
I don't think the documentation would be specifically different here because you're still asking for informed consent. You're still going through the informed consent procedure. And if the patient's not able to provide informed consent, then it's a discussion that moves to the healthcare proxy or whoever's making medical decisions for the patient. So our documentation doesn't have to be extensive. It can be quite brief with the components of informed consent whether it's for treatment of um, inappropriate sexual behaviors or other behaviors where you're thinking about something, say, like an antipsychotic to manage agitation in a patient with dementia. I think I would add to that, that when we are using antiandrogens, just to be clear, it is a form of chemical castration. So it is a difficult decision to make. But as I said, sometimes necessary in order for a patient to be able to receive the care that they need. If the patient is hospitalized, there is also the option to consult a bioethics committee uh, for a second opinion. They can often be very helpful in looking at the case from an alternate point of view. Yes, and I recall doing that when we were inpatient. What I've also done in the outpatient setting sometimes, if you know you don't have access to a bioethics committee, is then in addition to family involving another physician, that's included in the patient's care. Often it's their primary care doctor, the geriatrician, the staff at the facility where they are residing. But again, sort of making sure that it's a combined decision and everybody's comfortable with it. Dr. Jane, that's an excellent suggestion. We talked a little bit about the limitations um, in terms of medications, and providing quality care to patients experiencing sexual dysfunction. I think we can also focus on long-term care settings. And let's discuss a little bit how the setting itself can hinder healthy expression of sexuality in older adults. So it's a significant issue in long-term care settings. Multiple obstacles can prevent healthy sexual expression in those settings, including staff bias, labeling such behaviors as inappropriate, insufficient privacy, the practice of separating couples upon admission to long-term care, and concerns regarding consent and capacity. And lastly, there can be discrimination against LGBTQ individuals. And for many of them, it can be reasoned that they may avoid placement into long-term care facilities. I agree. And this is a topic that I feel very strongly about. And I think as, as a clinician community, we sort of want to lead the charge to reduce or avoid these restrictions. So providing risk and capacity assessment training as early as possible so that staff feels more confident, creating a safe environment for residents and managing any sexual behaviors and allowing residents to express their sexuality. You know, uh, making simple changes to the environment, like offering do not disturb signs or offering private spaces. Again, it's a way without necessarily making it very obvious, uh, just allowing people to feel more comfortable and feel okay with the idea of continuing to express their sexuality even when they are not at home anymore. But I don't think this often completely fixes the restrictions that you mentioned, Dr. Aziz. I think traditionally or historically, there has just been so much bias against sexual activity in facilities that it's a cultural shift that's sort of slow in coming. I wonder what your experience has been, Dr. Collier. I think um, with everything, change takes time. And sometimes with our best intentions, education doesn't really change um, the process or the outcomes necessarily. 
There's more that needs to be done on multiple levels. And as a clinician, you can feel a little bit trapped where despite your best efforts, despite staff education, you're not ensuring the the optimal care for patients in long-term settings. I've certainly been in those situations where sometimes all you can do is, you know, provide empathy and validation to the patient and really acknowledging their distress. There is also the high level of discrimination that LGBTQ patients tend to face in long-term care settings. And the stigma is so often internalized by older adults. Uh, so they are less hesitant to discuss their sexuality. And as Rehan said, more likely even just to avoid long-term care settings because of that stigma. You know, staff training, staff education, I think even creating concrete policies where possible so that this is something that just becomes a routine part of training. When we have team meetings and discussions, avoiding assumptions about sexual preferences and using more inclusive language when asking open-ended questions. And I think this is certainly something where, you know, the older generation of clinicians, in which I now include myself, has has had to learn things. And I think we continue to do that with, with each successive wave of clinicians. Connecting older LGBTQ adults to community resources, uh, such as sageusa.org, which is services and advocacy for LGBT elders USA. Those are all things that we can do. In our program, somebody put together a resource guide for LGBTQ older adults. And it was interesting that nobody realized the need for it. But as soon as it was created, you know, it was distributed so widely because like, the need was there. We just never realized it. That sounds like an incredible document. Is that publicly available, Dr. Jean? That's such a good question. I don't think it is, but I also don't know why it couldn't be. So I will, I will find that out for you. I think it's very important for us to acknowledge that sexuality is a significant aspect of life for older adults, you know, with or without sexual dysfunction. And we can help our patients by asking about their sexual health, by addressing sexual dysfunction, by creating more education and more safety around this discussion, treatment options like behavioral interventions, psychotherapy, medications, those should all be considered and molded to the needs of each individual patient. The newsletter clinical update is available for subscribers to read in the Carlat Geriatric Psychiatry Report. Hopefully, readers will look at this. Subscribers get print issues in the mail and email notifications when new issues are available on the website. Subscriptions also come with full access to all the articles on the website and CME credits. And everything from Carlet Publishing is independently researched and produced. There's no funding from the pharmaceutical industry. Yes, the newsletters and books we produce depend entirely on reader support. There are no ads and our authors don't receive industry funding. That helps us to bring you unbiased information that you can trust. And don't forget, you can now earn CME credits for listening to our podcasts. Just click the link in the description to access the CME post-test for this episode. As always, thanks for listening and have a great day.